Here's to Angus and to Rupert. May you rest well and peaceful. Those two randos from the print shop are not near your equal. Hi, and welcome to Sex and Whiskey. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we're here today to talk about A. Malcolm, the sixth episode of season three. A. Malcolm aired on October 22nd, 2017, and was written by Matthew B. Roberts and directed by Norma Bailey. As we discussed last week, there is a transition in the Outlander story where the overall shape of the story moves from what it was to what it will be. The sense of shifting stories we've had from the beginning becomes more marked at this point. And as a book reader, it's hard for me to tell if this point of inflection will be as obvious or as striking to the TV watchers. Regardless, Outlander up until now has been the story of Jamie and Claire getting together, falling apart, and finding each other again. From here on out, it's going to be different. Not necessarily bad, I'm not saying that, but different. And if the TV show manages to excise some of the truly insane stuff from the books, it could be really fun. I've got my fingers crossed. All right, let's go through the stones. In A. Malcolm, we follow Jamie through an ordinary morning as an Edinburgh printer, seditionist, and smuggler dealing with a set of goofy sidekicks who are not Angus and Rupert. I trust you with my life. Trouble is, then I trust you with your own. But ordinary life takes a sudden turn when the long-lost Claire arrives in his print shop to say hello. I thought I'd lost hold altogether and pissed myself, but it's all right. The two awkwardly reunite, and Claire tells Jamie about Bree, showing him pictures of their daughter. What did you name her? Brianna. They make their way through Edinburgh, and Claire reunites with Fergus, and Jamie takes her to the world's end, where she meets the enigmatic Mr. Willoughby. It means leans against. After bribing a British official in the basement of the tavern, Jamie whisks Claire off to the whorehouse where he keeps a room, and the two hit the wine, remembering the past and trying to figure out what their future will be after all this time. Do you want me? Whoever you are, James Fraser. Yes. I do want you. They spend the night talking and making love, and in the morning, Jamie goes out to take care of some business. Just to remind you, you're Mrs. Malcolm here in Edinburgh. Claire quickly meets young Ian, then lunches with the ladies, and when she returns to her room, discovers an intruder who demands that she produce Jamie's ledgers, and then threatens to rape her. Maybe if I fuck you, it'll jar your memory. And as the car goes up on two wheels, we cut to black. The weight of the promise of the print shop is so heavy that it almost feels impossible to be completely satisfied with it, at least for me. As much as I've always loved the reunion in the books, it never really felt like enough. It's like starving all day in anticipation of a big steak and getting a salad with little steak bits cut up into it. It's good, it's nourishing, but it's not quite enough. It's not what you wanted. And that's not to say that there's anything bad in this reunion or skimpy. I mean, let's face it, 80% of this episode is Jamie and Claire talking and reconnecting, and it's wonderful to see them together again. 
But there's something for me that's always felt a little light about this part of the book. And again, I get that feeling in the TV adaptation as well. Part of it, I think, is just the constant interruptions. First, it's Jamie's wet trousers, which he then takes off. And then when they start kissing, Jordy barges in with his ridiculous self-righteous rant about orgies, which I think... I mean, maybe I'm just not schooled in orgies, but isn't the defining characteristic of an orgy that there are, like, lots of people screwing? Whatever. Doesn't matter. But then Jamie goes to change his pants, and suddenly we're in ordinary, everyday, gotta change my wet pants world instead of, oh my god, the love of my life has returned to me world. And I just wasn't ready to leave the love of my life world just yet. Then they start talking about Brie and looking at Willie's portrait, and I know that this is how it would probably happen in real life. I mean, real life has no patience for romantic moments, but this isn't real life, and the overall effect of it is that I can't sink into this warm tub bubble bath and just enjoy the reunion. Then we're off to the streets of Edinburgh, where we bump into Fergus. Fergus! And that's sweet, but followed up by this ominous exchange. What about... Time to think it through. It was clear back. I'm, I'm not sure it's even a concern. I need to consult Ned Gowan. Have him advise me on the law. Hi. And now I've got to worry about the secret that Jamie's obviously keeping from Claire, and damn it. Then we're off to meet Mr. Willoughby. More on that in a minute. While Jamie goes to the basement to bribe a dude, and I'm sorry, I don't care about Jamie's business right now. Claire is back, man. Take a personal day. So then it's off to the whorehouse where we meet up again with Madame Jean, who seems not too happy to see Jamie with his wife. But now we know that whatever this woman is to Jamie, she's obviously not a paramour, as we were kind of led to believe with that misleading opening sequence. And now we're halfway through this thing, and it feels like, come on already. When they're in the room, and they're finally talking, and he asks her why she came back, this is what I love. The two of them, tentative, unsure, still in love, but almost strangers. It's great. So reminiscent of the wedding, and now the brilliance of the structure of the wedding just hits me again. Instead of making us wait for all of this while everyone ran errands, getting Claire's ring, getting Claire's wedding dress, getting Jamie's family tartan, we are immersed in their tentative connection, and we flash back to those moments to fill it out. That's what we need with this reunion. But instead, we got, hey, great to see you. Let's go to Target. I need to pick up some command hooks and bribe a fitting room attendant. It's just unsatisfying. So we get the reunion in the Kittlehusi, and they're talking and falling in love again, and we're getting so much of the wedding in these moments that I kind of wish that inspiration had gone beyond calling back to those moments and instead calling back to their structure. Making this episode all about these scenes, stretching them out, folding the rest of the events of the day into this, because this, this is what it's about. It's Claire and Jamie finding each other again and having some time to enjoy it all before the secrets and the games and the adventures sink in. I don't know if a fractured structure like the wedding had would have fixed it, honestly. I mean, this is pretty much beat for beat how the book does it. And I've always loved it because it's Jamie and Claire together again. And I've always been disappointed by it because we don't get to really enjoy it, sink in and just have this little steak pieces mixed up in salad. Except the salad is errands and business and pictures of the kids, which would be great later on, but not now. But I don't want to complain. It's the reunion. I want to love it. 
So I'm going to list my top 10 favorite moments of the reunion because there is a lot to love here. For years I had the eyes of a hawk, but my sight doesn't know what it once was. as dashing as ever. I love that Jamie needs glasses. I mean, let's face it, both of these people look amazing and the glasses only make him look hotter because they give our ferocious warrior a touch of vulnerability and thoughtfulness. But it's a nice touch of vulnerability for Jamie, and I love it. Do not be afraid. There's the two of us now. The callbacks to the moments from their relationship, the fact that they remember these lines after 20 years, as well as those of us who've been watching the DVD box sets over and over to deal with Droughtlander, shows us that no amount of time apart can possibly separate them. They are now as in sync as ever. Time doesn't matter, Sasnach. You will always be beautiful to me cheesy line, but I love it. Because the thing is, when people truly love each other, they are beautiful to each other. I know this is true because in college, I fell in love with an Irish guy who looked like a big potato. And to this day, I kind of like potato looking men. And let's not ignore the obvious. Both of these people are unnaturally beautiful, but that's the thing about stories. It's not about what the experience actually is. It's about what it feels like. And that's what it feels like. Love feels like you're Claire and he's Jamie. Potatoes notwithstanding. Charles spent many years a hunted man. He actually disguised himself as a woman and escaped to the Isle of Skye until his brother came and rescued him. So he's all right then? On the present day, yes, he's alive. But he won't live a very happy life. I love that Claire studied up on Prince Charlie and the history and can tell Jamie the whole story. And while I don't like the interruption of the reunion for casual chit-chat at this point, Jamie and Claire are wonderful, even when it's casual chit-chat. Your free time? It's a miracle. God has restored you. All right, I know this isn't technically part of the Jamie Claire reunion, but the joy on Fergus's face when he sees her the way she hugs him, it is part of the reunion because he was their son and the family is together again, even just for this brief moment. So nice. Why have you come back? Why do you think I've come back? Jamie's uncertainty about Claire's return, why she might have come back, if it was just to tell him about Brianna and then go home again. I love that. Once again, the vulnerability that comes with true love is heartbreaking. You never touched me. I can touch you now. At the first moment of reuniting, the first touch is so pivotal. This is when he knows it's real, not just a vision. And the feel of skin on skin, that's when he knows for sure. They've been reaching for each other across centuries, and now this simple touch is everything they've both been longing for. Like the wedding, they take their time. They sit, they drink, they talk. Yes, they're going to have amazing sex. And yes, that's going to be great. But great sex can happen with any two people who know what they're doing. This, the connection of them as people, 
That's what makes them what they are together. And the booze. I mean that and the booze. I know that you have a life now and perhaps there are other ties. I've or... burned for you for so long. Do you not know that? So much has happened and they've both changed. But I believe who you are, the core of your being, that never changes. And two people who love each other from that central place, as these two have and do, that's a love that will transcend everything else. I would very much like to kiss you. May I? Yes. And this is what it's all about, isn't it? These two, after all this time apart, after all that has happened to both of them, still want each other, still love each other. And whatever else is going on, that will always be true. We have not done this in a very long time. All right, I'm going to talk about the book a little bit. No spoilers. But we need to get out in front of this thing. I'm worried about Willoughby. Willoughby is a problem in the book because he's this caricatured, sexually deviant little Chinese guy who is often employed to be the butt of the joke. Oh, look, he has this thing for, well, in the book it's feet. Here it appears to be elbows. Doesn't matter. I've been dreading seeing Willoughby again for so many reasons. And part of that is that while this adaptation makes a lot of good choices in what to keep and what to chuck over the side of the boat, it also sometimes follows the book a little too faithfully. The book is great a lot of the time, but sometimes it's really not. Sometimes it's outright offensive. And it's the hope that in the forming of the TV show, we might be able to mitigate some of that offense. My jury's still out on TV, Willoughby. We start with him being drunk and unruly in a tavern, wrestling with a prostitute after taking advantage of her elbows or whatever. But then Willoughby sits down with Claire and they talk. He tells her his real name. And let's never forget the power of names in Outlander and connects with Claire person to person. I like that. Claire seeing Willoughby as human means we get to see him as human. And that's definitely better. At the same time, our first impression of him is this goofy, drunken Asian outsider, the potential butt of jokes that just aren't funny. And while there isn't much in this episode to condemn the treatment of the character entirely, I am wary about it. Now, this is not to say that a person from an underrepresented group must always be perfect. Not at all. This is where the magical black wise woman trope comes from. And everybody's like, what? We made her wise and magical. What do you people want? We want you to write every character who is from a different group from you as though they are, you know, human. That's what we want. The problem with stereotypes is not that they are inherently negative. They aren't always negative. It's that they're inherently dehumanizing. They take the group to which a character belongs and attribute flat, culturally designated and often ridiculous and insulting characteristics of that group onto that character. The same way we do in life. Whether the characteristics are positive or negative, the result of the practice is an essential dehumanization. And the dehumanization of people is the number one problem we have in the world today. We can fix it in our fiction. If they'd open this scene with Willoughby being amazing in math, it would be equally bullshit. 
Instead, they open with the goofy Asian comedy mule, Jamie's cute little short round, who will be funny and make Jamie's life endlessly complicated with his crazy antics. This is how Willoughby starts out in the book, and while he does get some good moments, I find this a little hard to forget and to forgive. He is a more complex character than that, and I hope those elements of his characterization will be strengthened in the TV show. We do get the bulk of Willoughby, Yi Tian Cho, in this lovely connection with Claire, but it comes on the heels of a ridiculous first impression, so it's looking both hopeful and a little bit treacherous, and I'm not relaxing about it just yet. Yi Tian Cho sounds very much like a coarse garlic word. So your husband thought Willoughby would do better. We open the episode with Madame Jeanne straightening Jamie's neck scarf slash ascot thing. I don't know what that's called. And we're supposed to worry that she's his wife or his girlfriend now. Later, when he is so easy about introducing Claire as his wife, it's clear that his relationship with Jeanne is not romantic. So the opening moments of the episode were clearly just setting the viewer up to freak out, which is a deliberate mislead that has no narrative value. And y'all know how I feel about those. We get a few hints throughout the story that Jamie's keeping secrets, but he reveals so much to Claire, his work as a seditionist and a smuggler, that I think we're supposed to relax a bit about it and presume he's told her everything there is to tell. This is not a spoiler, but based on the things that are revealed in this episode, most notably from Fergus and Jamie's comment that he needs to get Ned Gowan involved, it's not looking good. And this brings me back to the point I've been making for the last couple of episodes. We're moving into a different story now. The love that defies time and death story we've been telling since Claire first went through the stones is going into a different space now. And you know, that's okay. You can only keep that kind of thing in the air for so long before it just becomes positively exhausting. And what's to come, no spoilers, is not without merit. It's just a different merit. And if you, like me, are having a little trouble as the car we're in shifts gears and goes up on two wheels, I just want to say, hang on to the little handle over the window and let's see where this thing goes. All right, that'll do it for today. I'll see you next time with my thoughts on Season 3, Episode 8, Creme de Menthe. Slash Sex and Whiskey is a chipperish media production and is entirely funded by passionate story lovers like you. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you can become a chipperish media supporter.